This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 16 On Mr. McCabe and a Divine Frivolity. A critic once remonstrated with me, saying, with an air of indignant reasonableness, If you must make jokes, at least you need not make them on such serious subjects. I replied with a natural simplicity and wonder, About what other subjects can one make jokes except serious subjects? It is quite useless to talk about profane jesting. All jesting is in its nature profane, in the sense that it must be the sudden realization that something which thinks itself solemn is not so very solemn after all. If a joke is not a joke about religion or morals, it is a joke about police magistrates or scientific professors or undergraduates dressed up as Queen Victoria. And people joke about the police magistrate more than they joke about the Pope, not because the police magistrate is a more frivolous subject, but on the contrary because the police magistrate is a more serious subject than the Pope. The Bishop of Rome has no jurisdiction in this realm of England, whereas the police magistrate may bring his solemnity to bear quite suddenly upon us. Men make jokes about old scientific professors even more than they make them about bishops, not because science is lighter than religion, but because science is always, by its nature, more solemn and austere than religion. It is not I... It is not even a particular class of journalists or jesters who make jokes about the matters which are of most awful import. It is the whole human race. If there is one thing more than another which anyone will admit who has the smallest knowledge of the world, it is that men are always speaking gravely and earnestly and with the utmost possible care about the things that are not important, but always talking frivolously about the things that are. Men talk for hours with the faces of a college of cardinals about things like golf or tobacco or waistcoats or party politics. But all the most grave and dreadful things in the world are the oldest jokes in the world, being married, being hanged. One gentleman, however, Mr. McCabe, has in this matter made to me something that almost amounts to a personal appeal. And as he happens to be a man for whose sincerity and intellectual virtue I have a high respect, I do not feel inclined to let it pass without some attempt to satisfy my critic in the matter. Mr. McCabe devotes a considerable part of the last essay in the collection called Christianity and Rationalism on Trial to an objection, not to my thesis, but to my method, and a very friendly and dignified appeal to me to alter it. I am much inclined to defend myself in this matter out of mere respect for Mr. McCabe, and still more so out of mere respect for the truth, which is, I think, in danger by his error, not only in this question, but in others. In order that there may be no injustice done in the matter, I will quote Mr. McCabe himself. Quote, but before I follow Mr. Chesterton in some detail, I would make a general observation on his method. He is as serious as I am in his ultimate purpose, and I respect him for that. He knows, as I do, that humanity stands at a solemn parting of the ways. 
towards some unknown goal, it presses through the ages, impelled by an overmastering desire of happiness. Today it hesitates light-heartedly enough, but every serious thinker knows how momentous the decision may be. It is apparently deserting the path of religion and entering upon the path of secularism. Will it lose itself in quagmires of sensuality down this new path, and pant and toil through the years of civic and industrial anarchy, only to learn it had lost the road and must return to religion? Or will it find that at last it is leaving the mists and the quagmires behind it, and that it is ascending the slope of the hill so long dimly discerned ahead, and making straight for the long-sought utopia? This is the drama of our time, and every man and every woman should understand it. Mr. Chesterton understands it. Further, he gives us credit for understanding it. He has nothing of that paltry meanness or strange density of so many of his colleagues who put us down as aimless iconoclasts or moral anarchists. He admits that we are waging a thankless war for what we take to be truth and progress. He is doing the same. But why, in the name of all that is reasonable, should we, when we are agreed on the momentousness of the issue either way, forthwith desert serious methods of conducting the controversy? Why, when the vital need of our time is to induce men and women to collect their thoughts occasionally and be men and women, nay, to remember that they are really gods that hold the destinies of humanity on their knees, why should we think that this kaleidoscopic play of phrases is inopportune. The ballets of the Alhambra and the fireworks of the Crystal Palace and Mr. Chesterton's daily news articles have their place in life. But how a serious social student can think of curing the thoughtlessness of our generation by strained paradoxes, of giving people a sane grasp of social problems by literary sleight of hand, of settling important questions by a reckless shower of rocket metaphors and inaccurate facts, and the substitution of imagination for judgment, I cannot see. End quote. I quote this passage with a particular pleasure, because Mr. McCabe certainly cannot put too strongly the degree to which I give him and his school credit for their complete sincerity and responsibility of philosophical attitude. I am quite certain that they mean every word they say. I also mean every word I say. But why is it that Mr. McCabe has some sort of mysterious hesitation about admitting that I mean every word I say? Why is it that he is not quite as certain of my mental responsibility as I am of his mental responsibility? If we attempt to answer the question directly and well, we shall, I think, have come to the root of the matter by the shortest cut. Mr. McCabe thinks that I am not serious, but only funny, because Mr. McCabe thinks that funny is the opposite of serious. Funny is the opposite of not funny, and of nothing else. The question of whether a man expresses himself in a grotesque or laughable phraseology, or in a stately and restrained phraseology, is not a question of motive or of moral state. It is a question of instinctive language and self-expression. Whether a man chooses to tell the truth in long sentences or short jokes is a problem analogous to whether he chooses to tell the truth in French or German. Whether a man preaches his gospel grotesquely or gravely is merely like the question 
of whether he preaches it in prose or verse. The question of whether Swift was funny in his irony is quite another sort of question to the question whether Swift was serious in his pessimism. Surely even Mr. McCabe would not maintain that the more funny Gulliver is in its method, the less it can be sincere in its object. The truth is, as I have said, that in his sense, the two qualities of fun and seriousness have nothing whatever to do with each other. They are no more comparable than black and triangular. Mr. Bernard Shaw is funny and sincere. Mr. George Roby is funny and not sincere. Mr. McCabe is sincere and not funny. The average cabinet minister is not sincere and not funny. In short, Mr. McCabe is under the influence of a primary fallacy, which I have found very common in men of the clerical type. Numbers of clergymen have from time to time reproached me for making jokes about religion, and they have almost always invoked the authority of that very sensible commandment which says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Of course, I pointed out that I was not in any conceivable sense taking the name in vain. To take a thing and make a joke out of it is not to take it in vain. It is, on the contrary, to take it and use it for an uncommonly good object. To use a thing in vain means to use it without use. But a joke may be exceedingly useful. It may contain the whole earthly sense, not to mention the whole heavenly sense of a situation. And those who find in the Bible the commandment can find in the Bible any number of the jokes in the same book in which God's name is fenced from being taken in vain, God himself overwhelms Job with a torrent of terrible levities. The same book which says that God's name must not be taken vainly talks easily and carelessly about God laughing and God winking. Evidently, it is not here that we have to look for genuine examples of what is meant by a vain use of the name. And it is not very difficult to see where we have really to look for it. The people, as I tactfully pointed out to them, who really take the name of the Lord in vain are the clergymen themselves. The thing which is fundamentally and really frivolous is not a careless joke. The thing which is fundamentally and really frivolous is a careless solemnity. If Mr. McCabe really wishes to know what sort of guarantee of reality and solidity is afforded by the mere act of what is called talking seriously, let him spend a happy Sunday in going the round of the pulpits. Or better still, let him drop in the House of Commons or the House of Lords. Even Mr. McCabe would admit that these men are solemn, more solemn than I am. And even Mr. McCabe, I think, would admit that these men are frivolous, more frivolous than I am. Why should Mr. McCabe be so eloquent about the danger arising from fantastic and paradoxical writers? Why should he be so ardent in desiring grave and verbose writers? There are not so very many fantastic and paradoxical writers, but there are a gigantic number of grave and verbose writers, and it is by the efforts of the grave and verbose writers that everything that Mr. McCabe detests, and everything that I detest, for that matter, is kept in existence and energy. How can it have come about that a man as intelligent as Mr. McCabe and think that paradox and jesting stop the way. It is solemnity that is stopping the way in every department of modern effort. It is his own favorite serious methods. It is his own favorite momentousness. It is his own favorite judgment which stops the way 
everywhere. Every man who has ever headed a deputation to a minister knows this. Every man who has ever written a letter to the Times knows it. Every rich man who wishes to stop the mouths of the poor talks about momentousness. Every cabinet minister who has not got an answer suddenly develops a judgment. Every sweater who uses vile methods recommends serious methods. I said a moment ago that sincerity had nothing to do with solemnity, but I confess that I am not so certain that I was right. In the modern world, at any rate, I am not so sure that I was right. In the modern world, solemnity is the direct enemy of sincerity. In the modern world, sincerity is almost always on one side, and solemnity almost always on the other. The only answer possible to the fierce and glad attack of sincerity is the miserable answer of solemnity. Let Mr. McCabe or anyone else who is much concerned that we should be grave in order to be sincere simply imagine the scene in some government office in which Mr. Bernard Shaw should head a socialist deputation to Mr. Austin Chamberlain. On which side would be the solemnity and on which the sincerity? I am indeed delighted to discover that Mr. McCabe reckons Mr. Shaw along with me in his system of condemnation of triviality. He said once, I believe, that he always wanted Mr. Shaw to label his paragraphs serious or comic. I do not know which paragraphs of Mr. Shaw are paragraphs to be labeled serious, but surely there can be no doubt that this paragraph of Mr. McCabe's is one to be labeled comic. He also says in the article I am now discussing that Mr. Shaw has the reputation of deliberately saying everything which his hearers do not expect him to say. I need not labor the inconclusiveness and weakness of this, because it has already been dealt with in my remarks on Mr. Bernard Shaw. Suffice it to say here that the only serious reason which I can imagine inducing any one person to listen to any other is that the first person looks to the second person with an ardent faith and a fixed attention, expecting him to say what he does not expect him to say. It may be a paradox, but that is because paradoxes are true. It may not be rational, but that is because rationalism is wrong. But clearly it is quite true that wherever we go to hear a prophet or a teacher, we may or may not expect wit, we may or may not expect eloquence, but we do expect what we do not expect. We may not expect the true, we may not even expect the wise, but we do expect the unexpected. If we do not expect the unexpected, why do we go there at all? If we expect the expected, why do we not sit at home and expect it by ourselves? If Mr. McCabe means merely this about Mr. Shaw, that he always has some unexpected application of his doctrine to give to those who listen to him, what he says is quite true, and to say it is only to say that Mr. Shaw is an original man. But if he means that Mr. Shaw has ever professed or preached any doctrine but one, and that is his own, then what he says is not true. It is not my business to defend Mr. Shaw, as he has been seen already. I disagree with him altogether, but I do not mind on his behalf offering in this matter a flat defiance to all his ordinary opponents, such as Mr. McCabe. I defy Mr. McCabe or anybody else to mention one single instance in which Mr. Shaw has, for the sake of wit or novelty, 
taken up any position which was not directly deducible from the body of his doctrine as elsewhere expressed. I have been, I am happy to say, a tolerably close student of Mr. Shaw's utterances, and I request Mr. McCabe, if he will not believe that I mean anything else to believe, that I mean this challenge. All this, however, is a parenthesis. The thing with which I am here immediately concerned is Mr. McCabe's appeal to me not to be so frivolous. Let me return to the actual text of that appeal. There are, of course, a great many things that I might say about it in detail, but I may start with saying that Mr. Cabe is in error in supposing that the danger which I anticipate from the disappearance of religion is the increase of sensuality. On the contrary, I should be inclined to anticipate a decrease in sensuality, because I anticipate a decrease in life. I do not think that under modern Western materialism we should have anarchy. I doubt whether we should have enough individual valor and spirit even to have liberty. It is quite an old-fashioned fallacy to suppose that our objection to skepticism is that it removes the discipline from life. Our objection to skepticism is that it removes the motive power. Materialism is not a thing which destroys mere restraint. Materialism itself is the great restraint. The McCabe School advocates a political liberty, but it denies spiritual liberty. That is, it abolishes the laws which could be broken, and substitutes laws that cannot, and that is the real slavery. The truth is that the scientific civilization in which Mr. McKay believes has one rather particular defect. It is perpetually tending to destroy that democracy or power of the ordinary man in which Mr. McCabe also believes. Science means specialism, and specialism means oligarchy. If you once establish the habit of trusting particular men to produce particular results in physics or astronomy, you leave the door open for the equally natural demand that you should trust particular men to do particular things in government and the coercing of men. If you feel it to be reasonable that one beetle should be the only study of one man and that one man the only student of that one beetle, it is surely a very harmless consequence to go on to say that politics should be the only study of one man, and that one man the only student of politics. As I have pointed out elsewhere in this book, the expert is more aristocratic than the aristocrat, because the aristocrat is only the man who lives well, while the expert is the man who knows better. But if we look at the progress of our scientific civilization, we see a gradual increase everywhere of the specialist over the popular function. Once men sang together round the table in chorus. Now one man sings alone, for the absurd reason that he can sing better. If scientific civilization goes on, which is most improbable, only one man will laugh, because he can laugh better than the rest. I do not know that I can express this more shortly than by taking a text, the single sentence of Mr. McCabe, which runs as follows. The ballets of the Alhambra and the fireworks of the Crystal Palace and Mr. Chesterton's daily news articles have their places in life. I wish that my article had as noble a place as either of the other two things mentioned. But let us ask ourselves, in a spirit of love, as Mr. Chadband would say, what are the ballets of the Alhambra? 
The ballets of the Alhambra are institutions in which a particular selected row of persons in pink go through an operation known as dancing. Now in all commonwealths dominated by a religion, in the Christian commonwealths of the Middle Ages, and in many rude societies, this habit of dancing was a common habit with everybody, and was not necessarily confined to a professional class. A person could dance without being a dancer. A person could dance without being a specialist. A person could dance without being pink. And in proportion as Mr. Cape's scientific civilization advances, that is, in proportion as religious civilization, or real civilization, decays, the more and more well-trained, the more and more pink, become the people who do dance, and the more and more numerous become the people who don't. Mr. McCabe may recognize an example of what I mean in the gradual discrediting in society of the ancient European waltz, or dance with partners, and the substitution of that horrible and degrading oriental interlude which is known as skirt dancing. That is the whole essence of decadence, the effacement of five people who do a thing for fun by one person who does it for money. Now it follows, therefore, that when Mr. McCabe says that the ballets of the Alhambra and my articles have their place in life, it ought to be pointed out to him that he is doing his best to create a world in which dancing, properly speaking, will have no place in life at all. He is indeed trying to create a world in which there will be no life for dancing to have a place in. The very fact that Mr. McCabe thinks of dancing as a thing belonging to some hired women at the Alhambra is an illustration of the same principle by which he is able to think of religion as a thing belonging to some hired men in white neckties. Both these things are things which should not be done for us, but by us. If Mr. McCabe were really religious, he would be happy. If he were really happy, he would dance. Briefly, we may put the matter in this way. The main point of modern life is not that the Alhambra Ballet has its place in life. The main point, the main enormous tragedy of modern life, is that Mr. McCabe has not his place in the Alhambra Ballet. The joy of changing and graceful posture, the joy of suiting the swing of music to the swing of limbs, the joy of whirling drapery, the joy of standing on one leg, all these should belong by rights to Mr. McCabe and to me, in short, to the ordinary healthy citizen. Probably we should not consent to go through these evolutions. That's because we are miserable moderns and rationalists. We do not merely love ourselves more than we love duty. We actually love ourselves more than we love joy. When, therefore, Mr. McCabe says that he gives the Alhambra dances and my articles their place in life, I think we are justified in pointing out that by the very nature of the case of his philosophy and of his favorite civilization, he gives them a very inadequate place. For, if I may pursue the too flattering parallel, Mr. McCabe thinks of the Alhambra and my articles as two very odd and absurd things which some special people do, probably for money, in order to amuse him. But if he had ever felt himself the ancient, sublime, elemental, human instinct to dance, he would have discovered that dancing is not a frivolous thing at all, but a very serious thing. 
he would have discovered that it is the one grave and chaste and decent method of expressing a certain class of emotions. And similarly, if he ever had, as Shaw and I have had, the impulse to what he calls paradox, he would have discovered that paradox again is not a frivolous thing, but a very serious thing. He would have found that paradox simply means a certain defiant joy which belongs to belief. I should regard any civilization which was without a universal habit of uproarious dancing as being, from the full human point of view, a defective civilization. And I should regard any mind which had not got the habit in one form or another of uproarious thinking as being, from the full human point of view, a defective mind. It is vain for Mr. McCabe to say that a ballet is part of him. He should be part of a ballet, or else he is only part of a man. It is vain for him to say that he is not quarreling with the importation of humor into the controversy. He ought himself to be importing humor into every controversy, for, unless a man is in part a humorist, he is only in part a man. To sum up the whole matter very simply, if Mr. McCabe asks me why I import frivolity into a discussion of the nature of man, I answer, because frivolity is a part of the nature of man. If he asks me why I introduce what he calls paradoxes into a philosophical problem, I answer because all philosophical problems tend to become paradoxical. If he objects to my treating of life riotously, I reply, that life is a riot. And I say that the universe as I see it, at any rate, is very much more like the fireworks at the Crystal Palace than it is like his own philosophy. About the whole cosmos there is a tense and secret festivity, like preparations for Guy Fawkes Day. Eternity is the eve of something. I never looked up at the stars without feeling that they are the fires of a schoolboy's rocket fixed in their everlasting fall. End of chapter 16